Welcome to the Thriving in the Word podcast. We are so happy to have you listening today, and it's a great conversation that we have as we dig deep in the Word. If you're enjoying the Thriving in the Word podcast, we'd invite you to like it on whichever podcast service you use, leave a comment, a rating, review, even share it on social media. Let your friends and family know about what we're doing here. We hope that you enjoy this edition of Thriving in the Word. Okay, so we're in the book of John, one of the four Gospels, and we've been reading John chapter 1 through 5 multiple times. Let's just talk about anything that specifically stood out. There's a lot jam-packed in here in these oh, five chapters, geez. so I don't know how far we're going to get, but let's jump into it anyway. There is a ton in each and every chapter, and even in some of the segments of that. The first thing I'd point out, and, and I understand that we have tape here so that other people might hear this, and it might be important to distinguish John's gospel, first of all, as a point of fact, from the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some people aren't aware of that, but once you read them, if you do, you can immediately see the difference. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. We give a summary of Jesus and his actions as it pertains maybe to Jewish prophecy and all the things that he did, his life and time, so to speak. And they're similar, which is what synoptic means, a summary and similar. This John gospel is totally different. And you realize that right from the opening bell, from the opening gate, you realize that John is a totally different gospel. His is not a synoptic gospel. It's not a summary. He's more focused on other things. He has a different agenda than the synoptics. He's given us an accounting of the world of Jesus, the life of Jesus in a different sense, unlike the prophetic tradition, as I told you, as I said with the synoptics. John, to me, reflects more on the meaning and purpose of the Christ event, of Christ being born, of the preeminence of Christ in the universe. And I'll talk more about that, but I'll give you folks a chance to jump in. I wanted to point out that, historically speaking, John was considered a prophet by Israel. Like, they were respected what he was doing. He had his own, like, little followers there that he was baptizing and and took his word as messages from God, at least his immediate circle. I think it's very profound to the baptism of Jesus Christ from John being so significant. You're talking about John the Baptist. Yeah, for sure. Okay, man. All right. Which is not this John. Oh, maybe I read the different John then. That's what I'm getting from you. And again, not the first John we're in? No. I'm reading John. That's John. This John, the apostle of Jesus, he writes about John the Baptist. So there's two John. And I'm John, so this is not a good Yeah, so it's John the Baptist you're speaking yes, of there. Yes, yes. Who I'm talking about, of course, is, is the John book the, of John, the, 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 apostle. the apostle and the gospel uh, writer here, different than the others. But and yes, is this, so yes. is this John the Revelator then? Yes. This is the same John that wrote John the Revelation. Beloved, yes? Yes. 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 Boiled that, in oil, that John? Yes. That John. Yes. Yes. Sent to the mines in Patmos? Okay, all right, we're on the same page. There's only one John that writes in the New Testament, and it's this John. And it's John you just mentioned. And then the other Johns, and then Revelation. Yeah. You know, he's the author. Of I was under all, the impression so. because sometimes I'll listen to this as like the dramatized version. Yeah. So you can imagine when you're hearing him recall what John was saying. And yeah. he says, I'm the one calling out in the yeah. wilderness. Now, that's what John, the gospel writer, refers to in here. And it can get confusing. So it's not but, autobiographical. Yeah, it's got not you. autobiographical. <laughs> it is autobiographical in the sense that John is writing about himself in it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a yeah, different it's John. Yeah. John. So, so okay, he okay. is in there later on. He, he'll refer to himself as 
was the, the disciple that Jesus loved, loved, which is kind of like a little bit of an odd way to refer to yourself. It's a pat like, on the back. Yeah, it's like, you know me, the favorite one. And he does do that, yeah. If you want to call that autobiographical, yeah, but it is certainly, the gospel is not written by John the Baptist, though it's good that you brought that up because John the Baptist played a prominent role as the harbinger of Jesus Christ, as the forerunner, as the announcer of him, his uh, emissary, so to speak, to say, here is Jesus Christ. I'm not that person. And to show that as powerful as he was, and you brought up another good point, John, he did have followers. He was said to be an Essene, one of these ascetic people. I don't know for sure. I've done a lot of reading on I'm not even sure if I'm convinced that he was, but he was certainly ascetic. You know, he's eating, you know, wild honey and dressed in uh, woolly, hairy things. And he had a huge following, but he didn't let it go to his head at all. He said, it's not me. They asked him a number of times, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? It's not me. And think about that. That's why I thought that was important that you said that about him, is that when you get to a point like that today, we were just talking about politics, how power drives people crazy, how it incites them, it makes them drunk. And he could have had that power himself, but he just divested himself of everything, immediately told people, no. Mm. It's not me. There's the Messiah over there. There's the Lamb of God. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very profound that even his own followers are like, who's this guy on the other side of the Jordan baptizing? And he's like, you know, I must become less so you can realize that he's more. Very well, profound. You, you know, skipping down a little bit to verse 35, because we're already like kind of on this topic of John the Baptist. And I just found this interesting. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Like he said, he had his own disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. Now he had already baptized him and all this stuff by this point. When John's two disciples heard this, it says they followed Jesus. I just think it's interesting. They just like, see you, John. We're packing our bags and we're going. <laughs> see you later. And then Jesus sees them like, what do you want? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? He says, come and see. So they follow him. And then look at this verse 40. And I don't know, I just never caught this before. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and told him we have found the Messiah, on and on. But I thought it was interesting that the very least, Andrew heard about Jesus, that he was the Messiah from John at the very most Andrew was actually one of those two disciples of John so it already was like already kind of positioning himself in a place of following a leader in preparation for the Messiah and then once he sees the Messiah come along mm, potentially okay. he's like okay John it's been nice <laughs> but I'm I'm going with Jesus now and then that's also where Peter comes from indirectly it implies to me that Peter probably at least from reading the text here. I mean, obviously we know they were fishermen. Peter was probably just like, you know what? This John guy, I don't know, not really into it. Uh, you let me know when the real action starts. And Andrew's out there following this guy. And then he comes back and says, hey, Peter, you want me to tell you when the real action starts? Well, it's starting right now. If you want to get in on it, you better come. And then Peter comes and then, of course, you know, mm -hmm. the rest is history as they say. So It kind of reminds me of your testimony of like, you know, growing up and all your little interests that you had and that God used mm -hmm. those avenues mm -hmm. to give you the skills so that you would need to yeah. plant a church mm -hmm. and to have all the skills that are required for the different huh. ways that you know thrive would come to be perhaps in andrew's life it was the same thing yeah. you know lately when i've been reading the word and meditating and praying i've been feeling like god's showing me that he sees the person that we will for sure become just like with peter i'm the good example of at the last supper and he's like you know one of you will betray me one mm -hmm. of you guys is going to deny me three times no way i wouldn't do that i'm with you to the very end right jesus knows that part of us or god knows that part of us mm. but he sees that same person that's willing to die and being crucified upside down in humility he knows what kind of person will be the kind of person that 
will spend the rest of their life going in and out of jail to spread the gospel and so on and so forth you know help write these letters to the different churches and so on and so forth it's like god sees the best possible version of ourselves mm. yeah and i think with andrew he's like you know what i know who you're gonna be right. you're gonna bring me peter mm. and i got work for peter to do so it's that whole omniscience thing you know yeah well and even with peter i mean calling him even though he knows that he's gonna deny him and like all these things all along i mean jesus he was not picking people haphazardly he knew the end of the story he did i want to just go back to john the baptist again and i'd read more about him in detail not now not for these five chapters but in the past and it relates to something that we talk about a lot here and i certainly ask for help with from my colleagues like yourselves and from god and that is humility and Mm. pride think about it john the baptist for his time as i said before i don't even think you can overestimate his importance i'm going based on my reading and what i know about him and just doing some research just the importance and the prominence that he held in the society at that time you recall even herod was afraid of him he was nervous when he Mm. had his daughter salome dance and she asked for his head he was petrified he said i'll give you anything else please not that because john held that place of prominence now knowing that the profundity of john to use your quote john we got all these johns going on (laughs) take that tell me that all of us wouldn't have at least a smidge of pride if we were john the baptist if Mm. we would have been a little less humble than him but he is such an example for us and that's what i get out of john the baptist with everything that he had been again the rock star of that time right there before jesus came on the scene he knew his place already he did not have pride he had humility and he gave it up because once jesus is there and he points to him and says there's the Lamb of God. There's the one you have to follow. There's the Messiah. Steps out of the limelight. I was just warming up the, the crowd. There yeah. you go. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Exactly, yeah. Johnny. He's out of the limelight. He's gone. Yeah, we, yeah. No more. Mm. Straight the way. No more. Yeah. Talk about humility versus pride. Mm. I just yeah. wanted to mm. say that because mm. it affects me because I always pray to God to strip me of my pride mm. and help me to be more and more humble each day. John the Baptist, an exemplary. And while we're on John the Baptist, am I wrong? I think in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm feeling like in maybe in Revelation or another part of the Bible, they mention John as Elijah. Is that true? Because I know that in this book, they're like, are you Elijah? And he's like, no. They're, Jesus, they're one. Jesus, because when they talk about, the scripture said that Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah, and Jesus basically said he did come, and it was John the Baptist. Elijah didn't die in the normal way, right? He right. He, he had yeah. the fiery yeah. chariot come. Right. That's why they think he was coming back. I didn't know about Revelation. Judah certainly alluded to it there. Perhaps John didn't even know that that's who he was. That verse kind of referring to is Matthew eleven fourteen. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because it's one of those things where I, sometimes I get to a point in scripture where I just say, lean not on your own understanding and how God uses fools to confound the wise. Right. Which we learn from Proverbs and it's, am I so wise that this is the important stuff that I'm supposed to be focusing on? Yeah. Or am I just going to follow Jesus and listen to him and be obedient? And that's exactly who John the Baptist was. When I say he was respected as a prophet or with his own following it's because he was living that kind of life he was being obedient to god in the face of obviously a beheading eventually but being ridiculed and mocked and being Mm. out in the wilderness and so on and so forth you know so in matthew 11 there's a whole scene where after the fact john the baptist is imprisoned and his disciples are tending to his needs in prison and john starts 
from all indication, having doubts about Jesus to some extent. And he's like, hey guys, go and find out if this is the actual Messiah or not. They come and they ask him about it. And Jesus talks to them and says, go back and tell them what you've seen, that the blind gain sight and the lame walk. Those who are leprosies are cleansed. And the reason why he's saying that was because those were fulfillments of prophecy for him and that John would have known as this is getting relayed back is, okay, prophecy is being fulfilled. But after Jesus answers the disciples' questions, he goes on, verse 9, now he's addressing everybody and says you know who'd you go out to see you see a prophet yes i tell you he's more than a prophet this is the one about whom it's written i will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you truly i tell you among those born of women there is not risen anyone greater than john the baptist yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of john the baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has been advancing and the forceful have been laying hold of it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until john and if you're willing to accept it he is the elijah who was to come whoever has ears let them hear. So we see that Jesus is verifying that, yes, in fact, John was. Was he physically Elijah? No, but he was the, the one prophesied. Yeah, the one him. prophesied, the one symbolic of Elijah who would come to bring or usher in Jesus. And this is a good segue into this too. I believe it's when he's speaking to Nicodemus and John and he says that no one has seen heaven. Are you guys with me here? Yep. Yeah. I, I can't think of the exact yeah. verse. I'll try to pull it up right now. But uh, he says, and I'm asking this as a student, is that because nobody could enter heaven until Jesus paid the fine, so to speak, till Jesus had to atone for all sin, for the faithful, for God's children mm-hmm. for the elect if you will or the few that will find it or is this like during the transfiguration of Christ right you see I believe it's Moses and Elijah are there right and a couple of disciples actually see this yeah where are they like are they in heaven with God are they in Abraham's bosom you know what I mean like whereabouts are they if Jesus says to Nicodemus no one has seen at that time they would have been in Abraham's bosom which was kind of this holding place until Jesus set the captives free and then they went to heaven he goes in at that point so at that point i mean until jesus's death and resurrection there was not forgiveness of sin as there was after so those who lived a life i guess reaching forward to the sacrifice that jesus would make they were held and we see in scripture abraham's bosom or paradise it's called elsewhere and then at that time which by many bible scholars will say that that's actually a segment within hell right because in the story the parable that jesus told about the rich man Lazarus who died and the poor man who also died. So they look across a chasm and on one side of the chasm is Lazarus's wealthy man and he's in torment and asking for even a drop of water to quench his tongue. So they're in the same proximity. Then we see Jesus, right? When Jesus died on the cross, scripture says he went to hell for three days and he sets the captives free. All these people in the detention cell, you're not being punished, but you're not also receiving your eternal reward because there has not been a price that has been paid. Jesus goes in, scripture says, sets the captives free at that point, brings them to heaven with him, and now they are with him at that point and not before. It's my understanding too from the transliterations that the word hell, which is used in a lot of the versions that we have today, comes from Hellenistic cultures and that word means like underworld or almost like an afterlife. The Greeks used the word Tartarus in the New Testament, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and that the Israelites would have used Hebrew 
obviously, and that word is Sheol, which means like pit or abyss. Is there significance to say like on the day that Christ was crucified, the moment that he dies, someone in another part of the world, let's say it's like Japan or let's say it's Siberia or something like that, right? If they have never heard the gospel because... It's like Paul writes, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And people need to have faith in order to receive grace and the gift of salvation. So what about those people? Do those people go to Abraham's bosom? Or no, there is no Abraham's bosom any longer. So what I'm saying is, is when Jesus is crucified and dies, you know, he gives up his spirit, so to speak. What about those people that die? Are they just were unfortunate and couldn't get to hear the gospel? Or do you feel like perhaps God is working in their own life, at, yeah. letting them know the story? Because if you think about the Bible, and I'm a Bible-believing Christian, which means Genesis is for real to me history, which means that everyone comes from Adam and Eve. Which means that everyone knows the flood story. Everyone knows the Tower of Babel, at least in their own culture, so to speak. So I just, there's that part of me that's like an evangelist where I'm worried about those other people. Like, who if they did not happen to be there in Calvary to watch that happen and to know who Jesus was. You mean died pre-crucifixion? Died the day that Jesus died as well. It's an interesting thing to think about, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, but if he's ever brought this up to you, it's just, what about those people? God loves everybody, so God gave up his only son for all. Does God just know that those people are for sure not part of, you know what I mean, the winning team? You know, broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will go that way right and then few will find it the narrow gates just interesting things to think about well the same question i mean the timeline doesn't really matter much whether it was the day before jesus died or the day after jesus died or or any point in between because if you think about it right there was still always a division of abraham's bosom and the actual shale the pit the grave you know, yeah. where there was suffering. So there was always that division. So what was the dividing line? Mm-hmm. Why did Abraham in the parable of Jesus go on one side and the poor beggar go on the other side? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So what was the defining factor? See, the defining factor is Jesus has always been central to the story. Okay. See, the issue is, if you read the Psalms, the Psalms, you see David reaching into the future, claiming something that was not technically his yet, but he knew was to come. So they all were looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking backwards at the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So they were all all centrally focused around the Messiah. So every person that ever lived BC did not end up in Abraham's bosom, right? Because many of them were very ungodly, unholy people. They came up with their own fabrications. We know the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God and his sovereignty took not all the descendants of Adam, but he took a small segment of the descendants of Isaac, even a smaller segment of the descendants of Abraham, right? Because I mean, if you think of Abraham, he had Isaac and Ishmael, and then after he had other kids. I think he had 20 other kids after the fact. So we have Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac then has Jacob and Esau, and then from Jacob's 12 descendants, now we get the children of Israel. So it's already forked out. Now they are the promised people, and now God is saying, if you follow my commands, and you do the sacrifices, and you do all of this, it will provide a temporary blood covering. So all they were was they were getting camouflaged. Their sin was getting camouflaged by the sacrifice of blood. So their sin was not being removed. It was just being covered over. Yeah. Until such time comes. It was like a pass. Right. Until such time that Jesus paid the ultimate price to remove it and then allow them entrance into heaven. So they kind of got like this temporary, okay, we're not going into eternal separation from God. We're in this holding area. Now we get to enter into God's presence at that point. Now with us, we can come straight into God's throne. We can receive not a covering over of our sin, but we can actually experience the removal of It's super significant. Mm-hmm. It's very, very significant because without the Old Testament, we wouldn't understand what Jesus did on the cross because we have to understand atonement. Mm-hmm. We have to understand you cannot be in the presence of God with sin because if God is justice, then he's going to destroy, he's going to administer that justice, so to speak. He's not going to let it slide because a good 
good God wouldn't do that. A good just judge wouldn't do that, right? So laying the foundation for atonement, blood sacrifice, and so on and so forth, it explains everything that's to come with Jesus. It's crazy. It, it makes me think of one day to God is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to God, because God is eternal. He's outside of time. I always think of him outside of time and space as the creator. So it's it's crazy to think that all of these things were just so that Jesus could be born of this bloodline through miraculous conception to fulfill prophecy in the Old Testament. He laid it all out ahead of time. It has all been laid out in such a way so that Jesus could be born in the city of David. Right. So that Jesus could come and die for everyone's sin. So that everybody could learn who this guy was. So that everybody has the chance post, obviously, yeah. crucifixion, the chance at salvation if they want to take that free gift. Mm. So it's, the timelines are insane. Yeah. You know, John the Baptist people. Yeah. <laughs> John the Baptist. Yeah, right. Wow, that was a tangent. Um, back to John the Baptist, but I'm going to skip a couple chapters further, and this goes back to what I believe, Dave, you said. And again, there's like some tension there, right? A little bit, because John, in his own right, is a great leader, and people are like flocking to him. We don't know for how long of a period of time, but for a big enough time that it almost, this way I understand it, and I obviously wasn't there, but it almost became trendy in some extent to go and get baptized by John. Like, because you see even like rabbis there. I mean, all these people, it was, it was like kind of kind of trendy. It's like he's kind of this up and coming, kind of crazy, kind of wild, but yet he's preaching some cool stuff and he's preaching that the end, that the Messiah is coming and maybe the Messiah really is coming, you know? And, and so it was, and Jesus wasn't yet on the scene. So they didn't know how divisive Jesus really was. Um, so they were expecting a king to come in and, and whatever else. And like, wow, this is you know, like, we, we need to investigate this. And people are getting baptized and they're coming by the multitudes and then jesus comes on the scene and john's influence dwindles he just takes a knee you know what i mean he's well he like, does oh. but like what dave was saying like imagine the humility involved in that to have the platform you've worked for now not only taken away but you're actually handing it over and that second half of john three twenty nine, john says because he's being questioned about this because they're like they're saying like hey jesus is just baptizing people now and all this is he really wasn't it says therefore i am filled with joy at his success verse 30 he must become greater and greater and i must become less and less and just that like humility, humility. more of it yeah again could we do that rhetorical question if yeah. we were in that position today could people today do that be built up to a certain point and he had a big following he did have a large following it may have become in vogue or the flavor of the month to go get baptized by by some of the dignitaries or people so oh, yeah we got to do this all these people are going out there the pharisees the sadducees and those people probably some of them got baptized by him but to just give it up just like that i could speak for myself and say no i probably wouldn't be able to give it up like that we just celebrated six years as a church together six years as thomaston moving to terryville two years in torrington and we just launched new britain for me launching torrington a lot of blood sweat and tears went into it and even then are still going into it and having to pass the baton for a different leader is like i'm giving my year and a half year old son or daughter mm -hmm. away like here take care of it and all right by the way if there's any problems just give me a call and mm -hmm. that's it and that's six years imagine how long john the baptist yeah had to work that, towards getting to yeah, where he got to exactly to build you know? that kind of where people were flocking to him essentially mm -hmm. right because word had spread right this guy knows scripture that this guy is he knows the the word of god he knows what the prophets are saying you know when he says look the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world you know mm -hmm. what i mean yeah. and the significance of that sentence knowing about jewish passover the lamb of god who takes right. you know, the slain lamb i mean it's mentioned over and over again different points so mm -hmm. when john says this everybody knows what this means especially mm -hmm. if they're pilgrims so 
so to speak, going to get a baptism. Mm. And not just that, creating such a stir and, and buzz about, like you said, maybe it's trendy or whatever, that whether it's the Pharisees or whether it's Herod's men or it's Sanhedrin or whoever it was, sends messengers to say, who are you? Give us answers to go give back to them because they want to know what's going on out here. But as John says that again, as he says that, that's basically his figurative speaking death knell. He does get his head cut off. This is death knell. When he says, <laughs> there's the lamb of the world, you know, there's Jesus, there's the Messiah, he is basically ending his time mm. as the preeminent prophet if you will, mm-hmm. the Baptist, the baptizer. So when I look at this, Christians and how this came about, the Christian John the Baptist really was the launching pad for the Christian movement, in mm. my mind. Absolutely. You, yeah. you think about it, I mean, he was the launching pad, and, and then mm. he just, I'm just thinking that, I just wow. think that's profound to say, okay, follow him, basically, is what well, he's saying. Yeah. I'm done. And I just fade out. He he set the stage. We have church, right? We're not there to glorify ourselves. We're there to worship Jesus. That's right. Right? And we're leading people in hearing God's word. We're leading people in worship. And so John was able to get perspective, like what you were talking about in Matthew, where he's like, is this the Messiah? Like, what's going on? I need to know. And so he constantly got affirmed and affirmed and affirmed and affirmed. So that way, when it got to the point of letting Jesus take over, he's like, all right, I've been affirmed so many times. This is the right move. I would say with Nicodemus... He says you got to be born again, baptized with water and by the Spirit. Just like we're talking about before, it's like John the Baptist was all part of God's plan because baptism needs to be done. Why? Because it says that in the Old Testament, it says that the Messiah will come and bring the Jew and the Gentile, which we talked about, and I forgot what book it was, but together. It doesn't matter if you're barbarian, Scythian, uncircumcised, or circumcised. The Messiah will be able to do this. So it won't just be God's chosen people anymore. It'll be God's children, the children of the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. I was actually going to comment on (laughs) one line you said, which is, it's all part of the plan. I'll springboard off of that then because it is. John the Baptist as prominent as he was, as popular as he was, John the gospel writer realizes he was just part of the plan. Mm. This is all about Jesus Christ. Mm. Especially John's gospel, more so than anything. As I said, the synoptic gospels to give you a summary, here's his life and time. But this is the meaning. This is his form and meaning. This is is Christianity here. Jesus Christ. He's the most important. John is just a piece of it. And John the gospel writer gives John the Baptist's due, here's what he did, and here's how we introduce Jesus Christ. But it's about Jesus Christ. And what reward did John get for all of this? And that's the thing, do all this stuff, and then you get arrested and then beheaded. You will be persecuted. You know, if you're a Christian, it says, like, right? <laughs> and, and that's where, you know, probably the second guessing came in. But it's also interesting, too, because, like, imagine. That's a pretty BA way to go out, though. I mean, oh, yeah. Well, come I on, get written by it. <laughs> <laughs> imagine your younger cousin claiming to be the Messiah. That's what happened. That's here. exactly what happened, yeah. yeah. You know, Jesus was like his younger cousin. We don't know what the relationship was before probably there was some relationship i mean mm-hmm. obviously mary went and stayed with her john's mother when she was pregnant so they were there for a period of time actually i guess it wouldn't be cousin because it was like what her aunt or something I, I don't know and so anyhow they're like related you know that they would be seeing each other but then it's interesting one verse 33 well actually i'll start at 32 then john testified i saw the holy spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him that's when john really knew he was speculating before and he says i didn't know he was the one but but when God sent me to baptize the water, he told me, so this is a divine revelation from God, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So again, it's like your, your cousin, cousin who, yeah. like, I mean, I just saw you back at, I was going to say Christmas, but <laughs> they weren't celebrating <laughs> that. <then. laughs> 
Jesus' birthday. Yom Kippur. They saw him at Jesus' birthday, so it was Christmas, right? I saw you back at so, carpentry school. Right? Yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, I just saw you on, on your birthday, you know? And we had the tree up and all Does that he stuff. have callus? <laughs> that verse that you just pointed out, Judah, there at 33 anyway, where I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize, and that right there, and the one who baptized me, John is pointing out exactly what Jesus has come to do. And then John, again, as we've been saying, just takes a back seat. It's your little cousin, but it's also born with a scandal, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Being cousin, he probably would have known that there was supposed to be a wedding. He probably would have attended the wedding for Joseph and Mary, right? Yeah. And then she's pregnant, and it's like, he's not going to marry her, and then an angel or messenger from God says, listen, this is part of the plan again. And then on top of that, you have, I think it was Andrew who might have said it, or, or maybe it was uh, Cephas. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So not, so not only is yeah. it your little cousin, that you know what I mean, but it's also scandal, yeah. but it's also from Nazareth, so it's just like... Nathaniel. <sighs> that place. Yeah, Nathaniel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But over and over again, it's the theme of the Bible. It's yeah. where you least expected. I, I highlighted that because anything that makes me laugh in the Bible... One of the pieces that some of the courses that I had in college that we studied a lot on, in John, because you couldn't do the whole piece in, in one course, is this prologue. I don't know if you folks dwelled on that, which is chapter one in Ben, you know how I like introductions. This is a I'm, lot, I'm surprised we didn't cover this yet. Well, because yeah. it, it, it's long. It's a lot longer than the Paul ones that I give you, but uh, and I don't want to go into all of it now because I did a lot of study on it, and I tried to recapture some of what I had learned in the past, but prologue is uh, chapter one, one through 18. That's John's prologue, and in that prologue, he does what a good speaker would do, and he tells you what he's going to tell you. And then, of course, he goes on to tell you that. He, he tells, tells you what he's going to tell you, and yeah, then he goes and tells you. And then he goes and tells you in the rest of this, but he tells you in there. But a couple of things that I will point out for your aggrandizement, Ben, uh, as far as introductions go. First few words. In the beginning was that smack of... Genesis 1. Genesis. That's it. What John is doing here, he is capturing Genesis. He's using a Genesis opening, and he's introducing us to the story in 1 through 18 here about Jesus. He wants us to see... This story, if you read that introduction, that prologue, as well as the rest of this book, wants us to see this as a story of God in the world and the Word. And we talk about the Word and, you know, the, those lines, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I don't know if anybody has studied, I, I know some of you have mentioned and you have some Greek background as far as uh, philosophy goes. John, that's you, probably. You may have heard of the word logos, well, logos means word. Word. It, it, it means word, exactly. And I point that out because in theology, and they had theology, was combined. The Greek theology along with early Christian theology, the word of God, the principle of divine reason, creative order, that was what logos meant, the word. In logos, the early translations, that's what they use for the word word, logos. And that's Jesus. He's the second person the Trinity becomes incarnate. That's what John is talking about here, the cosmos, and, and, and it makes sense why John wrote Revelation after I read this prologue and, and, and get into this here uh, where he's just talking about the word down in 14 the word became human and he just keeps talking about Jesus and basically what underlies all this for me and I want your guys comments on this is when he goes through this you know logos meaning and I wrote this down the divine reasoning implicit in the cosmos that orders it that gives it form and meaning to me he's talking about Jesus Christ it underlies the basic Christian doctrine of Jesus Jesus's pre-existence, mm. that Jesus always pre-existed a uh, time he was with God. He was the word. He was what God used to form the universe. As a matter of fact, a book that we read, if you think about it, Proverbs, 
in the part about wisdom, mm. where wisdom was personified. And it's the same Lady, thing. wisdom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is the word. And it all tied in to me. I said, I go, Jesus was here all the time. He was the word. And God uses his word to create. Mm. Dwell on that for a minute. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I, I mean, one, I, three, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has mm. been made. Mm-hmm. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And that's significant back to Genesis because it says that God used the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam or, or, you know, Adama, the soil made from clay. This is why we have the spirit in us, the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit. This is why God is like, you know, Jesus says, you know, I leave you my peace, my peace I give to you. Excellent tie-in. That's exactly it. You see this a lot in the New Testament, though, with the New Testament writers. You see them using scripture from the Old Testament, like when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I brought this up before that the significance to an Israelite or to a Hebrew was that when Jesus would have said that at the spectacle that everyone's watching this crucifixion of these three men probably entertainment for a lot of people they would have known that that's Psalm 22 that's the beginning of a song that they would have sang in their synagogue or their temple it's my God my God you know why have you forsaken me and it goes on but if you read Psalm 22 what you essentially are reading is David who slayed Goliath right prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus down to the points where it says they pierce my hands and my feet surrounded by bulls and dogs and they cast lots for my clothes etc you know my mouth is dry you know people they mock me and so on and so forth. Psalm 22 is just recounting all those things. And this is my favorite part of John, by the way, is in the beginning was the word. And then you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld its glory. That's what you're seeing is these New Testament writers going back to the Old Testament over and over and over again, all pointing to Jesus. No matter what part of the Bible you're in, doesn't matter if it's Psalm 22, doesn't matter if it's the blood of the lamb for Exodus, the angel of death with the Egyptian plagues. It doesn't matter if it's Genesis 1 through 11, where he says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. Doesn't matter if it's the caduce that, that was erected. So must the son of man be lifted. It doesn't matter where you are and what part of the Bible, it all points back to this one one central figure. As Judah mm. said in one of his sermons, the guy that broke the calendar. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. B.C. versus A.D., so to speak, you know? A guy that they've been trying to bury for 2,300 years, but he just won't stay down. Yeah, I had somebody trying to argue with me that Jesus never existed or something like that. I'm oh, like, dude. <laughs> like, Send okay, him my way, like, Judah, please. Like, yeah. like come on. Yeah. Like, there, there's more evidence that uh, Jesus existed than Abraham Lincoln. As far as, like, historical evidence, I mean, you're stupid to say that he didn't exist. Now, you may not believe the claims that he made I can handle that but don't tell me he didn't exist I mean that's insane all the great scholars and skeptics doesn't matter if it's Sam Harris David Berlitz all these guys they all agree that there's enough historical documentation of you know Tacitus the Roman historian who accounts for the court case under Pontius Pilate and then the death of it there's Josephus the Hebrew historian Luke himself who was like a medical doctor slash journalist there's so many non-Christian sources at the time of Jesus's life that all corroborate this story there's only one historical account which actually comes 150 years after the death of a different religion's prophet that says that it only appeared that Jesus died on the cross. And that's mm. the only conflicting yeah. theological, I know we're not going to name names yeah. here, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, but we but, know which one that yeah. is. But, but more than that, yes, you know, in, in, I don't know who that person was, but if you read enough, I mean, give him a case for Christ, yeah. Lee Strobel's there, give him that book. Even more than that, this book, this prologue got me to thinking about the pre-existing that Christ was always around. So you talk about the Old Testament, you mentioned in the Old Testament, if we think about it, and you gave a lot of examples, John, it made me think God regularly acts by means of his word Mm. in the Old Testament. He's faithful. Exactly. And John's opening passage here talks about the word as a person, personified. The word is not an abstract principle to John here. The word is a person, is personified. It's something that preexisted as Jesus Christ. So it's more than, yeah, he lived, he died on the cross there. Jesus Christ was wisdom. He was there to help God form the universe. And yeah. For him, all things were made. Those. Without him, nothing was made that, was, yeah. that has been made in, mm. in him. Was like, there you go. It can't be understated what the word is. Why we're even 
here today discussing scripture is because Jesus himself is the word. And not just that, he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, to separate the few from the many, so to speak. Those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. You know, how did Jesus rebuke the devil when the devil tempted him after his fasting? Shortly after this period, actually. What did he say? He quoted scripture, scripture to him. Deuteronomy was his response. He also said things like, Satan, get behind me, like, away from me. Sending him away over and over again. What is the word? The word is our first line of defense. It is our last line of defense. It is literally our only defense against the world, our own flesh, and the Satan the devil himself. So we should be in the word every single day, multiple times a day with our friends, with our family, if we want to grow our relationship to Jesus. So in this intro, this is the only time it's really mentioned like this specifically, that Jesus is the word and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. But this is enough. This is enough in this one piece of scripture for us to be in the word every single day day and to take it as Christ speaking to us using this timeless method. Doesn't matter if this was written 2000 years ago, someone reading these scrolls and sharing it with their friends and family, or it's us today, 2000 years in the future or 2000 years from present day. People will be reading this and hearing this and understanding that this is, if they're in the right frame of mind spiritually, if the Holy well, Spirit dwells in them, then they're going to know that this is Jesus talking to yeah. us. And the question from what you just said, John, that I get is you're saying we should be with him every day. Are we, and I don't mean just us, I mean, are we as a people, as God's people, are we making room for the Savior each and every day as you say we should? That's important. I'm not saying just you say we should because I know we should, but that's the question for me. Am I making room for Savior every day? I find this to be true, and I'll share it with you guys. Yes, I know you gave the challenge of 555 challenge, but I read the Bible and I know it. I don't have to read it. I can just think of verses. Sometimes I have trouble falling asleep, and for some reason in my mind, instead of counting sheep, I lay down and I'm thinking about the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't know why, but I just think of that, and I play it through my mind, and I know a lot of detail on it that may not be familiar with everybody unless you really delve into it and the road that the victim took and something about that, and you probably do too, Jude. And I put myself asleep, but there was a stretch of time in the last couple of months, like a couple of days, and I didn't get to read the Bible. And I find that when I don't read the Word of God, I get lost real quick. Mm. I get lost really quick. I share that with you. I should be sharing it with a lot of other people. Mm. You guys know already, you know, what happens. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do that, Judah. I just thought about it, John. That's why I'm asking myself, is there room for the Savior? I don't have room for five minutes a day and try to make sure that I do that. If I don't, even if for a day or two, something doesn't feel right now. Mm. I'm the same way. If I'm not yeah. in the Word every day, yeah. it's easy for me to go back to my old self. And Scripture tells us that you're made a new creation and that there's a celebration in heaven when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, when you invite Him to meddle with your life. And it says, He who started a good work in you will finish it. And it makes me think when you say that, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up Himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the Word. So if we're not washing ourselves with the Word, how can you clean something if you yourself are dirty? If you've been wrenching on your car all day or something like that, you just take out the trash. There's germs, bacteria, grease, grime, whatever on your hands. There's debris or whatever. So how are you going to go and, let's say, bathe a child? Or how are you going to go and wash someone's hands for them or wash their feet for them? You can't because you're contaminated. So unless we allow God to be the Lord of our life, unless we are spending time with our personal relationship to our personal God, then how can we wash our wives in the word? How can we teach this to our children? How can we share this? How can we even love people if we're filthy, if we're dirty? You can't. You can't. We need Jesus so much and people don't even realize. I say it all the time. Y'all need Jesus. And people laugh. No, y'all need Jesus for real. You don't even understand. I want to recognize God as the supreme being that created the world, that created everything around us. And sometimes we don't do that people don't do that don't recognize the one who created everything and there's a reason why we're here if we don't fall back and even like a day or two days and i said okay just wanted to share that well it's important for me. us to be in god's word as it says in romans 
10, 17, it tells us where faith comes from. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's like the more of God's word we hear and assimilate into our life, the more faith we get, the more our faith grows. And, you know, it's like even in my own life, I mean, I'm consistent now, but I mean, I went for years not super consistent with reading scripture. And I mean, I was in ministry doing all kinds of things. I knew God's word, but I wasn't in it in a regular basis because I guess I had some kind of false idea that, well, I've read it. I understand it, so let me just do it. And the reality of it is, like, you don't graduate from that. You need to be in that. It's just like saying, oh, you know what? I had pizza once, and it was great. And, you know, I don't need to go back there again. It's like, like oh. What'd you say? Yeah, like, hold on. Like, no. If you found something that you like. We live in Connecticut. Like, you want to keep going back to that, right? And so that was just kind of a work that God had to do in my heart of just saying, I read scripture, but I mean, I would, you know, miss a day or two here or there. We'd go for a week without getting it. And it was just like, no, is this important? Is your food more important to you? Then getting the daily bread of scripture is watching TV more important because I mean, most people are pretty consistent and they're watching TV like they watch TV every day. They eat food every day. They check Facebook and Instagram every day. They do all these other things every day. And yet, if I do something as worthless as, say, Facebook every day or Instagram every day, how worthless do I think Scripture is, right? Like, if I put it lower than that, yeah, yeah. get these reports at the end of the week from my phone that says what my screen time is and stuff, and it's like, it's embarrassing, right? It's like, yeah. it's embarrassing to say, oh, I spent seven hours this week on social media, and that's probably a good week. And yet... How much did I spend in scripture? Man, it's just challenging. And we wonder why we're living our lives in fear, worry, anxiety, doubt, depression. Now, I'm not saying that that we need to live legalistic and say, well, you know, if you're going to be on social media for an hour a day, you need to be in scripture for an hour a day. Like, it's not a legalistic thing. What is our appetite for? Right? I think that's really what it comes down to. Like, what are we craving? In life, are we craving some feeble attempt at self worth by being online and posting things, or are we craving our faith to grow and get closer to the word, the light, you know, as John also refers to him, so that we can be more effective in our world? So, well, are we going to know God for ourselves or know God through others? I yeah. mean, I definitely went many years just knowing about Jesus because people told me about him or I would try to attempt reading the Bible but had no relationship and I, I think that's the biggest society yeah, that's, factor that's huge what you just said is so true I wrestle with that all the time that everyone knows about God because they heard from their parents or they went to church or <laughs> you know catechism or you know Sunday school this or, is for everyone yeah, yeah that's everyone yeah, but, right. but the crux of Christianity other than obviously our faith and believing should be dwelling as much as possible on the word of God right that is the sword of the spirit that is used for washing people that is the good work that has started in us. That is Jesus Christ himself. The savior of mankind is Jesus. Jesus is the word. Like, let that sink in for a minute. Even in my Bible app here on my phone, you're able to search just words. I typed in the word right there in Genesis, the Lord's covenant with Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Mm. So you can supplement Jesus came to him, so right. to speak, with that. And everywhere you can insert the word of the Lord is essentially Jesus, mm -hmm. the yeah. savior of mankind, working yeah. with Abraham. And then think about how Abraham was faithful and the ramifications of all that. That is right. where the Israelites even come from, is the fact that he trusted in God because Jesus came to him. And then I go back to the Bible to round this out. I appreciate what you said, Judah. That gives me hope that even you mm. did that at one point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Not that I like that misery loves company thing, and I wasn't in misery. But, well, you know what? I think I am in misery. No, when we I don't can all lead, relate to I it. I think I am right. in misery when I don't read the Bible. And then I go back, right. and I read one little line, and I feel good again. And I'm going to give you the one little line in the prologue here. Chapter 1. 
verse 12. But to all who believe him and accept him, of course, they're using the past tense, but to all who believe and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. We can all be children of God. And then that makes right. me feel good. Right. Let me just kind of take, take a little rabbit trail because some of you say, oh, we're all children of God. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> right? There's contingencies there. It says it. Yeah. You got to believe and accept. Right. And, and you believe and accept. And, and this is what, maybe we'll close with this idea because all my life I deal with people who are following Christ or call themselves Christians or whatever. And oftentimes the conversation will come up like, oh, tell me about your faith story or how you came to Christ or whatever. And a lot of times people say, well, you know, I've always been a Christian or I grew up in this or my parents were Mm. a Christian. There is no such thing as a second generation Christian. It's like there is no such thing. Now, there's such thing as second, third, fourth generation Jews and Muslims and whatever else. Okay, I was brought up this and that passes from generation to generation. There is no such thing as a second generation Christian. Now, we can pass along our faith in a sense of by what we teach them and by what we instill in our children's lives, but there is no second generation. In other words, they have to believe yes. and they have to accept 100%. all on their own. Yep. Me, I don't, there's a period of time scripture talks about where, where I kind of cover my family a little bit, but at some point, what daddy and mommy does right. is not good enough anymore. Right. Well, my parents did. I mean, my parents are in full-time ministry. They just celebrated their 40-year anniversary of the church that they started. They've done this for a long time and I cannot get to heaven on the coattails of my parents. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can say, well, I was I was nope there had to be that line in the sand for me as well where I say you know I'm believing this this is my faith it's not something that's inherited I am as sinful and depraved as Hitler in my own soul and in my own spirit and I need Jesus as much as him or anybody else the worst person the absolute worst person that you hate the worst and that's condemned to die is on death row like I'm just as bad as they are and I need Jesus just as much and it's like until we come to that realization it's like oh I I just I'm just gonna kind of scoot in it's like no, we you have to receive it and believe you it. Have the, you have the contingencies, yet you read something like that and you say, okay, God has given me that option there. Right. Yeah, yeah, I right. can become I'll take a child it. of God. I'll take <laughs> it. And so lines like that, as we go through these different books, I pick out you know, a couple of lines each time that make me feel good again and say, this is why I have to read the Bible, just to reinforce that. As much as I am, I'll use your words, depraved sinner, Judah, mm. and the things that, you know, that I think that I've sinned at or know that I have, that there's hope. I believe in Christ. I accept him and just turn away from what I've done here, be more humble and all those things. And and something like that gives me hope, makes me feel good. Yeah. So. Yeah, indoctrination is very different for sure. To be indoctrinated as a Christian, to grow up in America, to grow up in the church. See, it's the Holy Spirit that revealed that to you and reveals that to us. Right. That there is no such thing. But how many people think that there is? Right. You know, it's a common misconception that because you were raised Christian, right. oh, you're going to go to heaven. Or even false conversions. Maybe somebody stopped you. Maybe it was a televangelism moment. Maybe it was a, a big Christian crusade. Who knows? Maybe it was just somebody that was a close friend to you who was like, you know, say this prayer in the back of the book and you're good. Right. But you're really not, at that point, truly a Christian. You started your journey but are you taking steps forward to grow your faith and to really understand and every day when i read there's more and more conviction poured out on my heart every time i read there's a lot of false ideas out there i mean <laughs> we even see in, in media you know somebody dies some famous person who dies and while they were alive they lived a horrible ungodly life but as soon as they die we're like oh you know heaven's got a new angel and oh rest <laughs> in peace and like all this stuff now i don't mean to like turn this around but it's like well did they believe 
and accept Christ as it yeah. says here in this verse that Dave just read? Or are we just saying empty platitudes just to comfort somebody? I get it. Like, we're not going to be like, well, they're in hell now. Like, I mean, <laughs> yes. that's reasonably unsensitive, perhaps. But we also need to make sure, because like, I see this not just in the world, but also in, in the Christian world as well, where people just make these assumptions. Well, you know what? They, they were such a good person. It's like, are we backpedaling on our theology? It's not about how good I am. Yeah. It's about how good Jesus is. And it's a free gift, but it's a gift that has to be received and accepted and believed upon. So we can dig a lot more into this. Which, speaking of which, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. But I think, I don't feel like we covered a whole heck of a lot here. We talked about John the Baptist. We cleared that up for me. And I, I desperately needed correction. So I appreciate you, boys. So, so now you know it's John the Apostle, uh, not John the Baptist. So, um, Traumatized versions. Yeah we, yeah. yeah, we didn't even get through four and five, let alone three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's continue on John one through five, and we'll pick up next week with that. Well, we hope that you enjoyed our discussion today on the Thriving in the Word podcast. We invite you to leave a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also consider sharing it on social media. We can't wait to be back together with you at the Thriving in the Word podcast.